Welcome to episode 111, count them, 111 episodes of the Unraveling Technology Podcast. It's wet, it's windy, and uh, Adam didn't get a lift here from me, so he's fuming. I got an Uber instead. Did you? Yeah. How much did that cost? I don't know, business card on it. <laughs> Just whack it on the plastic. I think it was like maybe eight quid. Okay. Because it was surge charging. Yeah, I'll bet it was. On account oh, of yeah. This. They whacked that up. <laughs> I uh, I found that I had an Uber because I've, I've updated my watch OS and everything. It's, it's that time of year again. And I noticed that there's got an Uber app on there, but it's very minimal. You load up the app and it's just one button in the middle that says call Uber. <laughs> and you can, you know, if you were caught out in the rain, you just need an Uber real quick. Like, don't worry about surge pricing. Just press the button. Mm, yeah. We'll get you an Uber. We'll figure it How out does later. It know where, where you want to go? Um... It's a very good question, but I'm not going to press that button to find out. <laughs> That's a really good question. Fuck, look at that rain. It's coming down, isn't it? Yeah, belting. Yeah, I'm not giving you a lift home. I'm off then. We'll see, we'll see. David, you're having a fun week over there? Sure. I was up till... I probably got to bed at 1am last night, I oh, think. Oh, yeah, you were working, working late. Working late, mm. uh, so... If I'm not fully with it, that is why. I find that when you work in like this, there's a certain kind of like meridian line almost after which it gets easier to work late. You know, the kind of res, the the kind of resignation that okay, this isn't going to be done quickly. I'm in I might this for the long haul. I'm in this for the long haul. I might as well enjoy it. Yeah, and I also find that once you cross that, it's actually quite hard to get to sleep afterwards. Just so buzzed. Yeah, I'm just like, <laughs> yep, no, I need to. I need to be awake. Have to be awake. Don't have to be awake anymore, but I'm still awake. How does it feel having a, having a, having a bit more of a morning? Because I know you're not a morning person. Uh, it's nice. Yeah, like, I yeah. You say that. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I I didn't get out of bed till ten. Have some nice. Have some breakfast. Which, given nice I normally get out seven ish, that's quite a lion. I've decided breakfast is my favourite meal of the day. Really? Yeah. I like it's one of the maybe this is sad. It's one of the highlights of my day, getting up, <laughs> putting YouTube <laughs> videos sad. on, making breakfast, having a bit of coffee, stroking the cat. What? Uh, what's your breakfast of choice? Um, two pieces of toast, one marmite, one jam. <sighs> that is sad. If that's your favourite meal of the day, <laughs> <laughs> marmite on toast. Think of all the amazing things you can have for dinner. But you know what? 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 I mean, sure, I could have something more complicated, but Marmite is quite a taste. Yeah, but I just feel like that's a snack. That's not breakfast. No? Slice like of toast. Sorry, I'm not having continental. I thought you were, were going to say something like poached eggs on, on a bagel with some... What time do you think I get up? Well, that was going to be my next question. <laughs> David, what do you have? Uh, usually toast. This morning I had toast and jam and a chocolate Pop-Tart. So living the dream. Yeah. <laughs> really rewarding yourself for that long evening's work. <laughs> I can't figure out if you're the sort of person who would regularly skip breakfast or religiously have it. I try and have it. Um, I have a sort of short list of jobs that get, you know, things get struck off the list depending mm. on how late I'm running in the morning. 
Uh, I try and keep breakfast, you know, on that list as long as possible because I just don't function well if I haven't had it. Agreed, yeah. It's on my list right above clean out the cat litter tray. If if you ever see me come to work with a box containing like two bits of bread and nothing else, (laughs) which I then disappear off and put them in the work toaster, like... 10 minutes into the morning that means i've been running late right okay then fair enough fair enough and adam to round this out what do you eat just quickly just enter just just cereals variety packs yeah two variety <laughs> packs Pops, mixed Frosties. together yeah 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 yeah, yeah. sit so there doing the maze on the back of the yeah, packet yeah. seeing lucky charms are back on our shelves for a five or a pot uh, yeah but are these the imported no, American no, no. Ones? well these i they will be a five well there was that. There was a while where you kind of had regular food and then silly American import food, and they always had that delineation. That sounded a bit xenophobic. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I mean, their their pop tarts are ridiculous. But now, no, I was there. You had Rice Krispies, Wheatos, Lucky Charms, just bang in the middle there, just completely po faced, <laughs> like oh. like but, they belong. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Is there not some rule about how much sugar you can put in cereals now? You know, because there is a there's a sugar tax in the. What if it's drink. not sugar though? What if it's sweetener? Mm. I don't know. They'll have found a way around it. Yeah, I do like marshmallow. Um, lucky lucky charms. Oh yeah. Although amazing. I have the uh, the the B and M knockoffs marshmallow mateys, exactly the same. Oh yeah, no, they're really good actually. Yeah. The problem is though, you always have to get the bran flakes in there or whatever, don't you? Yeah. They won't just give you the, the marshmallow, which is what everybody wants. I, pick, <laughs> I like to take a spoonful, pick the marshmallows out and spit the rest out. <laughs> <laughs> like a cartoon where yeah. they like eat a melon and spit the pips out. Mm-hmm. Just shards of bran flakes <laughs> shooting everywhere. Great. Let's talk some tech. Um, right. First thing that I pulled today is an article from a fella called uh, Nikita, I believe it is, who's a guy who runs a blog. Actually, I had to look through a couple of his um, a couple of his articles. He's got he's got some interesting things to say. This is a, a blog about programming and UI design, and he had one article where he argued strongly that the cursor, as an up, down, left, right, should be in the middle of a keyboard instead of on the right hand side of it, which you'd have to bring me around to. I think the idea being that that way your hands can always remain where they are, and you're not wasting precious milliseconds <laughs> moving down to the. Yeah, well, you understand the kind of guy this guy is when we talk about this this blog post that we're here to talk about. So on the 17th, he put up this article, which was uh, basically lamenting the bloat of modern software, wasn't it? It was called Software Disenchantment, where he says he's been a programmer for a while now, and in all of his time programming, he's come to learn that we are there's just certain things that we are not doing right when we program in the modern world. Now... David, you and me don't do a massive amount of programming, but I think there's certain things here that we can agree with generally. Yeah, from what I've dabbled in. Mm-hmm. He, he draws a distinction between sort of programming and software engineering. And like, so the term software engineering just kind of generally would normally apply to programmers, but he argues that, you know, engineering in other fields, you're kind of working on getting the best possible design the most efficient design he talks about creating buildings where you're using the minimum possible amount of material to create a building that you know is still completely safe and functional you know engineering planes so that they are you know as functional as they possibly can be car engines that are the most efficient that they could possibly be 
and so on and then trim all of, the fat off them and everything yeah and then makes the argument that an awful lot of the software that we see nowadays just doesn't follow that kind of he he argues it as a kind of a pride in your work so mm. they're not trying to be efficient they're just trying to work and either for reasons of time or for laziness they just take shortcuts and use massive bloated libraries that other people have written when they don't actually need you know 90 percent of the code in them just to get a, a result yeah so one of the examples that he gives is gmail where you use gmail for your emails don't you adam yeah when you open up a, were you talking down to me there no no that's fine all right, just okay. strike me as a, a, a kind of gmail like well, bohemian kind of hang on yeah. a second before you carry on sorry to, to just slightly diverge go for it um i use gmail for my work email i use hotmail for my personal email you mean outlook no i mean i've got a hotmail email address i've got a hotmail email address oh do you yeah well do you know what? i told someone the other day and they like freaked out at me and were like laugh like laughing at me and i stuff. think i think it's got a bad rep at the moment but what, what, i mean when, when did you make your hotmail account uh, when i was like 15 yeah exactly i'm like mine is from like 2005 or 6 or something i don't know maybe even older yeah probably older thinking about it um Probably so, yeah, somewhere I, you I can still check. have my Hotmail accounts, but I did make them when I was a you know teenager. Mm-hmm. I think if you went and opened up a Hotmail account now as your primary email, setting up a brand new account, that's when people kind of look at you a bit weird. Yeah, can you? Because they rebranded as yeah, Outlook or Live, didn't they? Yeah, they, it's yeah, they, it's they phased that, now. They phased Hotmail mm. emails out a while back, and then yeah anyway sorry no that's fine but they are still there and yeah i do have one although i tend to i forward all of those emails to another account and use that one now Mm. but it's still there i don't know if they'd ever get rid of it or sunset it because i guess much as people may laugh at us i bet there's still thousands millions of people using those those addresses there's dozens of us literally dozens. (laughs) yeah if you want to laugh at somebody then you know Mm-hmm. Maybe pick on the people who are still using their ISP's email account. Yeah. Or Netscape Navigator or something. Yeah. AOL. Yeah. No, I mean, it's all fine. You, it's all much of a sort. I was setting up my parents' new PC the other day and I had to put talk, talk email on it. And See, my, my only problem with that really is that, I mean, yeah, you probably got fewer features and all of that, but nobody... Like, do you even need them? The main problem I have with an ISP email is that you are then tied to that ISP. You can't switch to another internet service provider without losing your emails. Yeah. How can you not? So you can't just log in. Well, if you close your account with TalkTalk, for instance, they're going to close your email account with TalkTalk, aren't they? Yeah. So then if everybody knows that is your email address and the way to contact you, then you kind of got cut off. So you can't just log into your emails? What I did with my parents was I suggested that they might want to move to gmail at this point when they're not looking for a new internet service provider mm-hmm. and tell everybody so they've still got access to their old email accounts uh, and they can pick up all the people who are still emailing them or the sites that they've missed or whatever and move everything across and then you're free then you can go and start you know like phoning around. up the isp and saying your internet's slow i'm going to move and mm. if they call you bluff, then it's fine. Yeah, you got nothing to lose in that fight. 
You, you hit me up after this, Adam. We'll set you up a nice Williton.co.uk or something like that. <laughs> all right, then, yeah. Sure. Because then you can just forward all your email onto that. Yeah, all right, yeah. It'll be beautiful. Um, yeah, all this to say, if you go onto Gmail and you open Gmail in Chrome, and it's in this, his example here is a moderately sized email, even on a fast PC, it's going to take like 13 seconds for it to show you that email. In his particular example. In his particular example, which you can't verify, because I don't really use Gmail and especially don't use it for emails as big as the one that he seemed to open. But it does feel like there's a lot of bloat there. Or the other example that he gives is Windows feature updates, which do take ages, in fairness. He links, yeah, so his his argument is that it can take like 30 minutes to do a Windows 10 update. I'd say minimum. In that time, he argues, and I would agree, he could format his SSD drive, download a new copy of Windows, and write it to that drive like from scratch. Mm. So what is Windows 10 doing that is more complicated than that, that needs to take longer than that? They, he actually links to a different article by somebody else who is complaining about the whole Windows 10 update process, if you want an aside, on the kind of hey, Microsoft have done this clever thing, right, where they will download the update in the background. Mm-hmm. They'll give you a notification, but you don't have to deal with it then and there. And then they will change the shutdown button on your on your start menu to say update and shut down so that you have the option of installing that update when you finish with your computer, you shut it down, you let it, you leave it, installing this update and you walk away. And all of that is, you know, kind of good, sensible design. Yeah except for the point that you then the next morning come and turn on your computer and then it has a part two where it continues the update. Uh-huh. So you didn't actually save yourself a lot of time. You didn't you know, leave the computer updating itself and then shutting itself down while you went to bed or whatever. You, you got through part one of that, but then in the morning you've still got to wait another 15, 20 minutes while it finishes that update, potentially reboots itself a bunch more times then you log into your computer and then you probably get a like big full screen splash screen. We're getting things ready for you. Yeah. Go and make a cup of tea. Come back in a few minutes. And why, why couldn't the programmers that came up with this system, why couldn't they write in a thing that would restart your computer for you? If, if it really, really does need to restart, you know, do part one, restart the computer, do part two and so on. Why couldn't they write that into the update system? Mm. Why does it have to wait for you to, the user, to come and turn the computer back on in order to do part two? And it just kind of comes across as lazy, which, you know, that seems completely fair to me. There wouldn't be some sort of law there, would there? Something like if you go to shut down a PC, you're saying shut down. If you tell it to restart, it will restart. But restart and then shut down is there some reason that you can't give the computer the autonomy to do that i don't think so i mean the whole point is that if you're saying update and shut down ultimately what you want it to do is one update and then two when it's finished updating leave the computer powered off and if it can do that which there's no reason why it couldn't Mm. then you know it doesn't really matter how long it takes to update and restart. It should take as long as it needs. And I can appreciate that him saying, I could I could reinstall Windows five times in the space this takes is kind of reductionist because 
what updating is a more complicated process than reinstalling because i mean you've got to identify files and things which need updating the services to be stopped and started things to be tested fail safes to be put in place perhaps but should it be that should it be more complicated well that's up to cleverer men than you and i i suppose but i would have thought if you want to remove the old and have the new in place that each step along the way you need to be making sure that you're not leaving things in a horrible kind of limbo but how would it know I mean, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I mean, this is all this is all beyond us as we're not programmers, let alone operating system designers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he he makes the argument that one of the reasons that this happens is because you've got kind of this just pyramid of slow buggy code that people have slapped together to get a job done, and then there's just layers and layers of code that's been added on top of that to the point where you've got this massive, huge code base that nobody really understands. Yeah, there's no kind of, like, to quote him, he says, like, bigger means someone's lost control. We don't know what's going on. And you've got all these disparate layers. And you are, you are, and this is IT or this is tech in general, standing on the shoulders of giants. You are working off something that someone before you has done that legwork for and so yeah there's going to be bloat but so like one of the one of the examples he gives is android so you know the android operating system he says bare bones android without apps you're looking at about six gigabytes windows 95 was 32 megabytes think about that it's pretty mad yeah it's straight Straight comparison between Windows 95 and Windows 10. Windows 95, 30 megabytes. Windows 10, 4 gig. Which, is there a lot different in the way that it works? In the way that it, like, it looks different, but is there too much difference there? Is there, you know, 3 and, you know, almost 4 gig, basically, worth of difference in the code to justify that? Yeah, I don't know if you break it down, but things like, because... So you say what you will about Windows 10, but it's, you know, kind of glossy looking. Or oh, it's, you know, but more high resolution textures, etc., which has got to contribute to some extent. And then, and then he continues and says, like, whatever you think of Windows 10 at 4 gig, is Android, Android is 6 gig. Is it 150%? Does it justify being 150% of the size of the, you know, the big Microsoft operating system mm-hmm. when it's on a mobile phone. Yeah. And again, you've got, not only have you got the layers and layers of code slapped together, but you've also got people who've put in kind of patches and workarounds for every situation. Yeah. You see it with graphics card drivers, um, just from uh, like gaming knowledge. If you've, if you oh, update yeah. the, the GeForce graphics card driver, like every every version of update has got specific fixes in for specific games, so you've not got it's a swelling, stand- isn't it? Every time, yeah, you've not got this is this is the standard. This is the graphics driver. This is how you interface with it. You make things graphics get drawn onto the screen and so on. And this is how you do it. You have 
oh, we've got this random game that's using our our graphics driver and it's trying to do this and it's not really working very efficiently. So we're going to change our driver for that particular instance of this one particular game because it's a big game and people want to play it. Wow, uh, and we're going to make it run more efficiently in that particular instance. And that needs dedicated bit of code specifically for one one game. But regardless of whether you have that game or not, if you've got the, the graphics card, you're getting that as an update. Like yeah, it's it's backwards. Day. I mean, uh, a gra- what? The NVIDIA drivers these days, 350 meg to download? Something, something like, like that. that. That'll unpack to who knows what one gig or something yeah. maybe less but still yeah there's a lot of different games and the more games that come out on the more hardware the bigger that's going to get unless at some point you drop support and that's one of the other things he talks about is the rot the kind of the house of cards that everything is built on so you've got a phone that's three years old say and that probably is not going to be able to run today's operating system as stably or as well as as it did back in the day. And that's only three years. Whereas DOS programs, uh, as it says in this article, MS-DOS, you could run that on today's modern modern operating system and maybe with a little bit of tweaking, it'll work. Yeah. And that's 20-year-old I mean, technology. Mm. DOSBox is a DOS very box. common, well-known emulator that runs on basically anything that will just run DOS programs pretty much any DOS program out the box with, as you say, maybe one or two tweaks. Although he doesn't seem to like emulators either, Mm. really. Basically, he doesn't like these kind of custom, these solutions that fix a problem by adding kind of a layer or sandboxing things off. So another thing that he says is um, that our troubleshooting these days is rubbish. So, So if there's a problem, a lot of people's first instinct would be, but rightly so, because from a user perspective, this is what you should do. Restart it. Restart your computer. Restart your phone. Set everything back to how it should be when the when the operating system first boots. And that will solve a lot of people's problems. But why are they running into those problems eventually in the first place? Why is there not better error checking earlier? You used to have operating systems that could run for years without being touched. I'm sure that we've that there's probably... At companies that we deal with who have like a little Windows 95 box stuck in a cupboard somewhere and one day that'll turn off and something won't work but no one knows because it's just kept running for however long yeah and it'll be a hardware issue that eventually takes it out not a problem with the software crashing hmm. um, yeah we're and- just we're just used to this kind of world of you know everything everything is huge all these programs are huge and we just restart everything to fix it yeah and you know you run into a problem you restart it and spin up another instance spin up another server if your users are all conditioned to do that when you're writing a program then what and you know you've got your deadlines and it costs however much to um employ your programmers for you know to work on a problem and you could you could either you know try and improve your code base make it more efficient shave some milliseconds off yeah troubleshoot some of those bugs or put in new features that are going to bring new people to run that download your program Mm. what are you going to focus on if the users aren't really shouting about the fact that you know i leave this program running for a day and it breaks and i have to restart it but then it's fine again then you can see why people aren't doing that yeah but 
yeah there is i mean I, there is an art to it i guess that i appreciate that just doesn't really seem to gel with the the business sense the way that people build things nowadays yeah i mean one of uh the examples it gives is Jonathan Blow as well. Mm. Uh, so Jonathan Blow, who made Braid, Braid and, and The Witness. The Witness. Yeah. He created his own language to develop his game that allows him to compile 50,000 lines a second without any kind of slowdown, you know, no intermediary processes or anything like that. Whereas it's kind of common practice nowadays for you want to you recompile a program, it could take your system down for minutes, if not hours. That I remember, so Destiny, for instance, when they first released Destiny, which is like a big, big game, one of the things that was said about it was there's not a lot of content here. And it turns out there was an interview somewhere with someone who was talking about the d- design process or the pipeline. And if they wanted to, say, move a lamppost within the game, they'd have to leave it overnight to compile just to make that change because that's how kind of tools on top of tools on top of compilers on top of whatever their 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 workflow was it was just so dependent on so much else yeah it's a little bit of a kind of um like have you heard that saying about how like a fish will only grow to its environment might not even be fish it might be just animals like you'll never find you'll never find a spider bigger than a certain size because at a certain point something about oxygen and surface that you know, that catchy, kind of thing. Catchy saying, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's the one. Uh, well, I think hardware kind of works the same way. You get these constant improvements in processor. You know, Apple come out and say, we're delivering the best iPhone experience ever. Here's our, here's our chip that's twice as fast. But you do the same stuff with it because it feels like all the apps just kind of grow to use that new those new resources. If yeah. computers are doubling in power every year, or, you know, to borrow from the whatever principle it is, slipped my mind for the moment. Um, but, yeah, if, you, if that is happening, and yet all that we're doing with our, say, our mobile phones is running, you know, Facebook and WhatsApp and text messaging and maybe, maybe making the occasional phone call, then why aren't those things running blazingly fast? Because if the hardware has moved, so if it's advanced so much, why isn't everything, you know, wasn't it everything open in a fraction of a second? Why can't I navigate around a program without waiting for the page to load in? And the answer is because people are used to it being slow. So developers can get away with it being slow. And so they don't need to focus on that. So efficiency just isn't, on that list and suddenly you've got a bunch more overhead because the new iPhones come out or whatever and every all of your users have moved on moved up to a, a kind of better base specification so you start targeting that base specification as the standard experience so if things if you added new feature and it slows everything down it doesn't really matter because everybody's got a faster phone now so why bother yeah there's an example where he strips it back to something like Notepad. And he says, a word processor, you press a key, the key appears on the screen. And he says the latency, the amount of time it takes, milliseconds for that to happen between older terminal stuff and newer software, even that is so much longer. 
That I could kind of understand, though. I mean, de- depending on the software, if you think modern word processes, when you type a letter, it's going to maybe do grammar and spelling checks, maybe, you know, autocompletes or tr- language translations, things like that. But that should be, you know, we've got multiple process, like parallel processing now. Like you've got big, fast um, multi-cored, multi-threaded processors. Yeah. If you want to do two things at once, you dedicate one pipeline to just drawing the text and then all of that other check stuff you do in the background. Mm. Like there are ways around it. The argument is that people just aren't looking for them. I guess. I mean, I've never perceived typing in Notepad or Word to be especially slow or latent. So yeah, Occasionally in Word. I suppose occasionally you hit a few keys and then it goes... He's also he's also got a uh, an axe to grind against people building on top of certain programs like um, Electron. Have you you come across Electron before this uh, article? So. No. So Electron is basically Google Chrome, pretty much. Okay. Uh, and it's this kind of it's this open source um, environment that you can use to. If you're a web developer and you're used to writing web pages, you can apply all of that knowledge and the the kind of languages that you would use when you're writing web apps mm-hmm. uh, and use them with Electron to create a native application that will run just out the box on Windows, Mac, Linux, Android, iOS, all of that. Basically because what it's doing is running on top of Google Chrome. Mm-hmm. So you are writing stuff kind of like writing a web page that is then being, you know, served by Google Chrome, the web browser, but pretending just to be your app. Yeah. Um, Which makes it super easy to jump from web development into app development is the kind of pitch behind it. But the downside is that every single app that is running Electron as its back end has the entirety of Google Chrome um sat there running which is sort of i don't know something like fifty thousand lines of code is that right um it's a whole bunch yeah i mean just looking at chrome uh fi- sorry not fifty thousand fifteen million lines of code <laughs> right so okay. and it's got you know things in there like um if you if you're running it on the mac it's got a built-in native driver usb driver for an xbox 360 controller right in chrome yeah do you need that for your app because probably not Uh but it's in there yeah and yeah so and it doesn't it's not smart in that it doesn't just have you know one instance of chrome or electron that's running in the background that every app that you're running will then kind of just talk to that Mm mm-hmm every individual app will launch its own version of Chrome or Electron. Yep. So if you're running, say, some of the apps that use this are things like Slack. Um, I think Facebook uses it in places. Um, you've got a program called Atom that uses it. If you're running a couple of those, you are running essentially like four or five, if you've got a browser open as well, four or five instances of Google Chrome, which is pretty heavy resource hog on its own yeah eats ram it eats processor usage so yeah you've got this got programs that are 
you know, Slack is just like a text messaging program. It's really, really simple. It is. It doesn't do a lot. And yet it's using this massive slice of processor usage and this massive amount of memory just to kind of exist. I'm just looking up uh, old pictures of Google Chrome RAM usage and things like that. Just these screenshots from Windows XP where people are horrified because Chrome's using 25 megabytes of RAM and stuff like that. (laughs) Whereas as I sit here now, my Chrome is currently using 742 megabytes of RAM. Yeah. And that's normal, Adam. Is it? (laughs) Yeah. But it shouldn't be. Do you have any bugbears in your day-to-day software usage? Is there anything that gives you keeps you awake at night? Uh, I I was going to actually ask you because my RAM whenever i play games it's oh like you did it's ask it's me unusually high oh it, i've noticed slowdown recently so i don't know what that is mm. so i was gonna ask you about that but we're gonna have to talk about that now update your drivers is that what it'll be i don't know could I be know. it's as good an excuse as anything because what they'll do is they'll stick an extra bit of code in there and then you'll be laughing actually gaming is something in which you do tend to have a lot more efficiency uh, optimization yes it's true he he does specifically mention gaming as being an area that people do because in games the target is um oftentimes the target is to produce the most you know realistic um graphical simulation that also runs at the highest possible frame rate yeah and if you want you know, people to have a high frame rate game that looks amazing, mm. you really have to do work on optimization. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, games are actually kind of the exception to this rule because, you know, if you produce a game that runs at 20 frames a second in this day and age where 30 is the sort of bare minimum and people really want you to, you know, be playing at 60 then you're going to hear about it from your users. They're not going to be happy. Yeah. But but then also usually for these kind of big games, you'll have usually larger teams working on them as well, especially if it's a multi-platform game that you're trying to get in the hands of a lot of people. The sort of game that NVIDIA would update their drivers for, mm-hmm. that is, yeah, you usually got a lot of people, whereas computer software, it might be you've got one lead programmer, so maybe there isn't as much scope. I mean, I imagine Google Chrome, you'll have, Lots of people, but again, maybe it's that disconnect. Maybe you've got lots of people working on sandboxed areas of it. I think there's probably a lot more outsourcing as well and that, you know, you're just going to, you've got your very specific app for your, you know, that ties into your website or your service or whatever, um, but you've got nobody on your team to make that app for you. You send it to a third party and that third party will probably be getting, you know, tens of apps coming in all the time uh all completely different all needing completely different things but they've got their kind of their one code base their snippet that they know they can build anything on because it's got so much in it Mm. and you know each individual app is going to use you know five percent of the code in there if that but they know that they can program on it they don't have to look at each individual thing as its own system and figure out what it actually needs to do they just kind of build it on top of this pre-existing code base and shove it out the door just get that driver in there get that windows that xbox driver in yeah so i don't think 
I don't I, see this changing anytime no, soon. No, no. And I get there's arguments that programming relatively compared to building houses or building cars is still relatively in its infancy. And to be honest, the automotive industry perhaps isn't quite as efficient as people would would believe because, again, the automotive industry kind of built on a lot that's come before it. You have a lot of things where this you'll have multiple... You know, multiple uh, kind of development companies, or whatever you call the car equivalent, like Engineers. coming coming together. <laughs> yeah, car people coming together, and there is a lot of stuff that's based on older technology. And yeah, and the other thing as well is that if you and I wanted to build a car, that's not going to happen. Yeah, if you and I want to go and build an app that sends Adam a text message every five minutes. Then Absolutely we can do that. Could do that, and we might. Good <laughs> <laughs> compliments. Compliment oh, right, every five yeah, okay. minutes. Do that then, yeah. Yeah. Dear, insert name here. <laughs> You're doing <laughs> <Yeah>. great. <laughs> Male human one. <laughs> oh no, we forgot to put his name in. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's upsides, but yes, I think, unfortunately, that new graphics card, well, okay, maybe not the graphics card, that new processor, that new RAM you're using, you might have grand designs on it, but you might just be running Slack. Mm. That's a shame. Let's talk about something else, eh? Yeah. Why don't we talk about this uh, PlayStation Classic? Have you heard about this, Adam? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll just skip past it then. <laughs> so Sony have announced their answer to their, the Nintendo Classic systems. So they've brought out a, uh, a, a Nintendo Classic, a Super Nintendo Classic. So here come PlayStation with their shamelessly branded uh, PlayStation Classic, which is a miniature version of the original OG PlayStation console, except it's 45% smaller, I think. Mm -hmm. And it comes loaded with 20 onboard games. So you don't put discs in or anything. It's all flash storage on the actual device, even though they've only announced five of them so far. Yes. There's, we could speculate on what the missing 15 games are. Yeah. Uh, they're not, have they not announced them already? No, no, they've, they've given five. Unless so, you know anything from like breaking news I'm this morning. Sure, I saw a big list of it. I'll, I'll double I'm check. I'm sure it that everyone's throwing in their five cents about what games Sony should put on it. The official PlayStation blog. Um, That's where you go to know. Yeah. So this is the announcement article. So it listed the five games were Final Fantasy VII, uh, Jumping Flash, Ridge Racer Type Four, Tekken Three, and Wild Arms. Mm-hmm. So, and then 15 unnamed titles to come after this. Go on, Adam, retract what you said. Well, I'm, I'm looking now. I'm, I, I did see a list of them. Okay, that's what it does say on the PlayStation blog. I'm still looking, carry on. Okay, right. Well, if they haven't announced the other 15, which we don't think they have yet. There's nothing on the blog yeah. newer than that. So, then newer than that on the PlayStation Classic. That would kind of suggest that... Well, my, my assumption would be, so you've got five games announced for it and they've already put the pre-orders up. So it's $100, which is translating in our pre-orders to about 90 quid, which is a depressing exchange rate. But that aside, 90 quid for a pre-order for five games because you don't know what the other 15 are. You would assume that with the announcement, they're putting their best foot forward. Does well, that mean... It's or, December 3rd it's coming out. Right. So maybe, you know, you've got a couple yeah. of months. Maybe they want to keep the hype going by just dropping a new title every now and again. What, what were the five titles again? 
Um, so the kind of the big one is Final Fantasy VII because yeah. everybody loves Final Fantasy VII. But you can get that on your mobile phone now. You can get anything on anything now. And they're also making an HD remake that'll come out at some point in the future. Yeah. Um, it's, a play, it's appealing to the whole nostalgia thing, isn't it? There's but, Jumping Flash, which I have heard of but never played. It's yeah. kind of like a first-person platforming game, yeah, from sure. what I understand. Uh, Ridge Racer Type 4, which is a racing game, which I do remember. Uh, yeah. from the early days of playstation yeah i think that was probably one of the games on one of those demo discs that everybody who bought a playstation fairly early on ah. got one of the demo discs with demo ridge discs. racer yeah uh tekken 3 which obviously a 3d fighting game probably the best of the ps1 tekkens sure yeah uh, and then wild arms which is that a role-playing game no i think it's some kind of combat thing isn't it okay I don't know. Again, something I've heard of, but clearly know next to nothing about. Uh, It's a Western-themed role-playing game. Oh, right. Okay, sure. That's what I know. The problem with this is... Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Should have come to Adam first. With the SNES and the NES, like... They are those games are still playable, like they've not aged. Like the PlayStation games will have aged worse than those ones have. There is definitely that sort of weird, like early to late pixel art games like that whole spread of pixel art is fine and playable like i don't have much nostalgia for the nes um so i find those games harder to get into yeah i think nostalgia is a big factor in this it will get you through kind of the ugliness of stuff nowadays but um the super nintendo era of graphics they still look amazing and people are still making games that look like the, that, those kind of pixel art graphics because that, like you had a limited palette and you know, you've had, you only had a certain number of pixels you could show on the screen and all of this. So there are definitely limits there, but they really pushed that art to the best that they could get out of those limits and you can make an argument of if you apply some limits to yourself, you can actually come up with, you know, some amazing looking art. Whereas if you're completely limit limitless, then the direction is just kind of, you know, you could do anything and therefore it's much harder to focus into a particular style and so on. It's a bit like software development in a way, isn't it? <laughs> but yeah, so the, like graphically speaking, definitely, um, it's a lot easier to sit down with a Super Nintendo game and just pick up and play. And there is a reason that people are making games that look like that nowadays, Mm. Uh, not just for the nostalgia. Uh, It still looks really good. Old PlayStation era 3D, like the PlayStation along with the Saturn were the first two kind of widespread 3D consoles with the PlayStation kind of taking the lead far ahead. And there's a lot of kind of very early jankiness. Yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? It's a lot of warping, weird distortion. They kind of base everything on triangular polygons, don't they? Yeah, as opposed and to you've, squares. Or- the, the limits that you've got. So like, if you want to display a character, you only have a certain number of polygons to play with because the PlayStation can only draw 
a certain number of polygons so you need to reserve some for your character and a lot for your environment and so on and you for that reason you've kind of got these you know potentially big sprawling worlds but you can only see you know a couple of meters in front of you before it all disappears off into fog because the playstation just can't handle drawing more than that mm-hmm. it would just slow to a crawl mm. so yeah um it's difficult to go back to that aesthetic I mean, as well like if you think about the the really big playstation games that you'd want to play things like metal gear solid or resident evil or something like that they've all been redone in hd anyway and they're just so much easier to play yeah I just wouldn't want to play the originals. Yeah, but I don't know. You, I feel not, you can't. You won't be able to tell me, Joe, if you're going to try it that like the original Resident Evil is better than the one that they did for like the GameCube or something. I think nostalgia is going to be a big factor in this. Yeah, I think it's going to be huge. And as, I, you've, as we've said, you can get this stuff elsewhere. You could go and download a PlayStation yeah, emulator yeah. right now if you wanted to. I think it's yeah the nostalgia value, the fact that you can get a Diddy version of it. The kind of well, not necessarily prestige of owning one, but the the kind of you know everything that comes with. Oh, I've got a mini PlayStation. Here's a piece of my childhood, the, readily packaged. The arguments against emulators, not like for one, it's illegal, uh, so people are going to be put off by that. But also, the advantage of having this stuff on a PlayStation Classic is that you've got an original PlayStation controller in your hand, and you're playing it on a TV. Yeah. So that kind of that experience is as close to what you would have had, except of course you're playing on a you know probably huge flat screen TV compared to the sort of the CRT TV that you would have had back in the day, which was a bit blurrier and hid a lot more and kind of smoothed stuff over. So yeah. it's not going to be the same. But I think yeah, this it's going to ride on nostalgia basically. This thing. If you remember, you know, sitting down and playing these games, then you very much could be like, oh, yeah, like, okay, I, st- I stopped playing consoles. I never moved on. I don't have a PC with all of these games remade already or a, a PS4 where I've bought the HD remaster of these games. Yeah. Like, but I remember those from my childhood. Yeah, I want to play those again. You go out and buy it and probably have a great time. I don't know... Like I can imagine with the Nintendo stuff that there will be people out there who have gone, oh, I, re- I heard about that game and I never played it yeah. and it looked really good. I'm going to buy that so that I can play, you know, this game. Yeah, I don't that, think it's going to appeal to that. I think it's going to be, it's going to have a hard time. The this, other this, this is, what this is, is this is Adam on a Friday night, rainy, windy outside, Adam, little Adam sat there, cross-legged, on the on the on the living room floor, with his little PlayStation One, with his pizza and his Coke sat next to him, into the wee hours, playing Final Fantasy VII, you know, going on adventures with his hero Cloud Strife. That's what this is. Like literally, none of that appealed to any of my childhood. Really, I had an N sixty four. Sat on the sofa. We weren't allowed takeaway pizzas or Coke. <laughs> uh, two bits of bread then. <laughs> a bit of toast, Marmite and jam. Yeah, look, I, just, I think it's 
Uh, it's cosy, is I what it is. I think it's rubbish. Uh, like, like Don't you, what about uh, from a technical way... aspect? So, oh, look, there's a tiny PlayStation that plays PlayStation games. That's you cool. can just stick it in the back of your TV. Don't even have to right. run it off main. So car. you basically, yeah, it's, it's powered off USB and it's got, so you're not fishing out like cables and stuff like you would have back in the day. You've got power, which is USB, so you can power it probably off your TV, uh, if not just off like a USB phone charger. Um, and an HDMI out on the back of it. So you just plug it into your TV on HDMI. And then the, so they've, it's 45% smaller. So it's this tiny little like hand sized PlayStation, original PlayStation. Mm-hmm. It's got the buttons on it, which all do all have functions. So obviously the power button turns it on and off. Um, it's got the disc tray and the disc open button that doesn't, open up there's because obviously it's too small for discs but pressing the disc open button will in software give you a menu to change the disc so it has an actual function to it Uh, and the reset button i think pauses freezes the game um and then you get replica playstation one controllers the thing that slightly disappointed me is that they are the original playstation one controllers not the dual shock ones so they don't have joysticks and they don't have uh four speed feedback rumble in them mm-hmm. um two things which you'd associate with the the modern playstation controller yeah. i've heard a theory actually theory that perhaps down the line because this does limit you in what games you can put on there because there's games like Ape Escape, which is a big Sony property. Do you think that they'd want to put that on their PlayStation Classic as a, as a kind of benchmark title? They can't do that because you had to have a DualShock to play Ape Escape. But what if, David, because you know, remember they did a PS1 that was like a smaller version of the PS1, yeah. of the PlayStation 1. Mm-hmm. What if they did that in a couple of years' time, or a year's time, and that came with analog controllers and then they release another 20 games well here's the alternate theory which again is just like a suggestion um on the back of this thing uh is what appears to be a um access panel Mm -hmm. which could just be them following the design of the playstation uh they could have just mocked that up because the the original PlayStation had like a a serial or a parallel port or something on the back of it hidden behind the panel um or what if there's a secret network port back there? What if Whoa. you can plug it into the internet and download another ten games and update update your PlayStation with new the new roster of games for like a small fee every now and again or something like that? And when when they get to kind of like round two or three or whatever of releasing batches of games, what if they release? something like ape escape that required a dual shock controller and then simultaneously you can go out and buy yourself a dual shock controller to go with your playstation classic maybe maybe yeah i mean because at the moment it is it is more than you'd play for the snes or nes classic isn't it yeah I think they retailed it's 50 60 pounds it's got to be coming in at 90 it's got to be more the the guts of it have got to be beefier yeah i suppose there's got to be a bit more grunt there to render 3d stuff but i mean there's footage of the the snes classic maybe not the nes maybe running n64 stuff yeah so i mean it's it's kind of getting there they're pretty similar inside apparently the uh, nes classic and the snes classic Mm -hmm. 
So There's not a lot of difference in there. So that's a hard no from you. Yeah. I've, I mean, I've got a SNES. I've got, a, well, my housemate's got a SNES classic. Yeah. We played it for a few hours and we've never picked it up again. But doesn't it look good? It's all right, but I, I just, <laughs> I, I don't want to be too, I'm not trying to be negative. I just think. There's another way, yeah. Well, who, who, how often are you going to play it? Because the games probably will be, for the most part, unplayable. Probably will be a bit of a collector's piece. Because you can't, oh, as yeah. you said, David, you're not going to have many kids saying, oh, I want that for Christmas. This isn't appealing to a younger generation. You could, though, see a bunch of fathers being, or mothers being like, I'm going to buy this for my kids for Christmas so that they can see, see what, what it was games like. Look like. None of this nonsense that they're playing, this Fortnite mm. and their, you know, this is Final Fantasy VII. That's, that's a game. Yeah. Um, None of this flossing. My, my concern with this, and again, we've not seen the full list of games, so I don't know how justified this would be. I've always thought that Nintendo has a, not only has a strong lineup of games, but specifically has a strong lineup of characters mm. and properties. So, you know, Mario is a Nintendo mascot. Samus from Metroid is Nintendo. Link from, you know, Legend of Zelda is is a Nintendo product. You only see those on Nintendo systems. Yeah. Whereas PlayStation, um, a lot of the classic PlayStation 1 games and mascots and characters that you can remember either died on the playstation like they appeared on the playstation and then they never had another game again or they have gone on to appear on other systems yeah it's like if you look at say i don't know what what would you call a a classic playstation one game tomb raider yeah so tomb raider for instance is on like appeared on several next-gen systems like in the PlayStation 2 era. You could get Tomb Raider games on other systems and then nowadays it's just on everything, on PC, Xbox, PS3, so on. Like Crash Bandicoot, again, jumped to loads of different systems, uh, now available on PC and Xbox and so on. Yeah. Like Spy- Spyro, I'm pretty sure that's Spyro is about... Skylanders, it's yeah. everywhere, isn't it? Resident yeah. Evil... Resident Evil's out on everything. It's got to be something. Tekken. Yeah. Just everything, isn't it? Okay. There's very, very few things uh, that have, you know, had the long-lasting legacy that people will still remember them that have remained PlayStation exclusive. Well, think, didn't they do a, you know, like Smash Brothers, like that's all the Nintendo characters, like a, a beat mm-hmm. up like that's That is now like a flagship title for uh, for nintendo consoles but then yeah. playstation tried to do something they did similar. playstation all stars and it it's called? just like who cares they really? didn't like, have a very big roster at no. all sack boy a lot Wait, of that well, Drake. a lot of that was ps2 it? and ps3 era as well metal gear uh, snakes on smash brothers isn't it and that's <laughs> yeah. like one of their main characters oh thought of one croc so what? Croc would Croc. fall into my argument of died on the PlayStation 1. Yeah, but that's what this is. The PlayStation 1. Joe, can you still remember the password for, is it the level select or something for Croc? I can. L-L-L-L-D-R-R-L-L-D-R-D-L-U-R. That'll get you all the levels Whoa. on Croc. <laughs> yeah, you can have that one for free. In fact, I was watching a speed run recently and they did that code. And I thought, wow. Bubsy 3D was that? Was that PlayStation exclusive? 
They, well, yeah, but again, they've done a new Bubsy and it's multi-plat, so. Wow. Yeah. Not even Bubsy. Not even Bubsy. Croc yeah, started that? off as a Yoshi game. Did you know that? I did not. Yeah, it was a pitch to Nintendo to make a, a Yoshi-based platformer and Nintendo said, nah. So they turned green dinosaur Yoshi into just green crocodile croc. Dodged a bullet there. There was, um, I was reading in that Masters of Doom book, which is kind of the start of Id and John Romero and jo- um, John Carmack. They, one of the big things that PC gaming had a hard time with initially was um, smooth scrolling. So, you know, in platformers, it was more screen based. So you start at the left, you get to the right, and then it transitions new screen left, right. They created a scrolling version of Super Mario Brothers World 1 1. So the first level, and they actually pitched that to Nintendo and said, look, we've done what everyone thought was impossible. Let us adapt to PC um, version of Super Mario Brothers. And Nintendo said no. I think they're just very keen to keep hold of their property, even where it would have perhaps been a, a boon to them. But yeah, but, but that turned say? into Commander Keen. Yeah. So and hey. who's played Commander Keen? <laughs> just wait for the PC mini. <laughs> PC classic. <laughs> oh, all those old DOS games just work, Joe. Oh yeah, that's true. Uh right, one last little thing. It kind of uh maybe a bit ties into our first story, uh, was this article from jackcenter.com, which was talking about the role of imposter syndrome in a lot of tech professionals or a lot of uh, tech professionals claiming to have it. So Stack Overflow did this survey where they they ran ran the gamut. They went and they asked people things like age, gender, uh, how, how much experience they've had in the industry, uh, all kinds of questions. And one of the things they asked them was about mental health or how they, how they perceive their role within the tech world. And one of the things that came out of this was that a large amount of people who work in the tech industry identify as having imposter syndrome. Adam, do you know what imposter syndrome is? Uh, Is that where you don't think you're good enough? Yeah, you kind of feel that you're in a way kind of masquerading in your job and that you don't deserve the position. Maybe you feel like you've looked your way in or, you know, Mm. just kind of you've managed to fool everybody into or People seem to think that you're better than you are and any minute the whole facade's going to fall down and people are going to realise that actually you have no idea what you're doing and you'll be out on your ear. Yeah, you're flying by the seat of your pants. Sound familiar, Joe? (laughs) (laughs) Right, so, well, in our day-to-day, I'd say, as IT technicians or engineers, we use a large array of software and hardware. I think specifically for us as well because we have lots of clients with different use cases it gives you kind of this vast array of knowledge. Some things, the, your depth of knowledge is deeper than other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think to an extent, yeah, having to have a, a, a knowledge about a large array of things kind of leaves you in a position where you feel you know less about something than you think you should, or perhaps more about other things. Uh, I can't speak for you, David. Personally, I don't feel like I've ever felt I have this imposter syndrome. No, I I was I, I was reflecting on it. I think maybe I I definitely am slower to jump into something that I feel less sure of. Mm. Maybe I don't have enough confidence in myself in some situations, but that's very different to imposter uh, syndrome. Yeah. So yeah, I 
I feel like I belong here, even on this podcast. Like, what <laughs> yeah. what credentials have I got to <laughs> to <laughs> podcast all. to talk about technology? Yeah, yeah. No, I I've I've never felt that. Fortunately, I think some of that for me though is that I've been at this company for many years and have kind of grown with the company. So I've I've seen my own ability with tech improve as I've also seen the kind of people around me that have also been in the, the company for a long time, Ooh. them improve as well. So I can see that everybody's on a kind of upward trend. Yeah. Because uh, it moves quite fast generally, yeah. tech. So it is something you have to keep on top of. One of the uh, things that I saw people saying online was that when you have doctors and lawyers who also have the kind of jobs where things are constantly changing, be it laws or sort of like medical standards in tech, you don't have to sign on the dotted line the same way, so to speak, you know, mm. you kind of adapt technologies as you need them here and there, but you don't necessarily have to go out and you're not legally beholden to something. And if, if, something doesn't go how you expect it to it's not often the end of the world whereas yeah. there are other um kind of similarly kind of taxing roles where it feels like the results of a misstep are perhaps more severe could even be life and death yeah but then you've also got people maybe the the dunning kruger effect as well which is um have you heard that term before i'm not sure if i have that's people who maybe are confident in their abilities, but maybe not rightly so. Right. Overconfident. Overconfident people. Yeah. People who perhaps just don't second guess themselves, not because of necessarily any particular skills, but maybe just because they're not very self-aware. I'm sure you get people as well who are just very good at their job and confident in it. But I think in IT, as well you're probably going to get quite a lot of people who are kind of yeah just maybe don't have the full picture mm. Mm. but again it's going back to that based on the shoulders of giants things of you are adapting and using tech that other people before you have put 99% of the work into so I'm sat here with my laptop I can tell you how Windows 10 works I can tell you all the bits in the computer but ask me to break down a component of that computer and that's where we've maybe yeah. become more unstuck there's a problem with this device driver. Like, yeah, okay, I didn't write it. I yeah. don't know how that works. I don't know. We need the like, developer to give us. Is an there a new version that. from the developer? Because if not, that's kind of where I'm at. <laughs> if not, yeah. we need to replace that part with something we do have the drivers for. Yeah, it's kind of like, um, like I always said about how you know i don't understand my car but it gets me from a to b and other people are much the same way about it and computers mm. i don't understand it but it gets me from a to b and uh, whereas people would look to you and me to have more of a deeper understanding and we can fix issues but yeah when you get down to the silicon and the wire there's still a lot of stuff there which is knowledge that you it's kind of assumed that will not be not factor in won't be a problem yeah i'm i'm very conscious that i don't have electronics knowledge or I have the very base level of electronics. So I can explain how a computer works on a software level and kind of dig down even to some degree of the hardware level, like how RAM works and all of that. Uh, I can connect components together, plug them all in, but you know, how does a processor work? Like when, and when you deep dive into how an 
how a processor actually works. I don't really know. It's run on clocks, isn't it? Yeah, clocks and cycles and I don't know. You see those photos that people put out, Intel puts out when they release their new one where they've done sort of like... (laughs) Look at that graph go up. Look look at all these transistors in this tiny, tiny space. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty good. I I don't know what they're doing, but... They're doing maths and that's about it. Yeah, and I bet the internet makes this worse as well because you are that much more aware of the people who do know so much about what they're talking about. So if you have a, for example, if you had a driver that you had an issue with and you went onto a forum and found the the developer, the driver talking about it or someone saying, well, here's, here's what you need to do, blah, 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 blah. You might think, okay, wow, how does that person know that? And I don't. Hmm. But you kind of might have someone there with a very specific set of knowledge, but that adds up when you've got a thousand people with their very particular niches and you look at the big picture and think there is a lot that I don't know. But One of the links off this article was uh, to a medium.com post by Alicia Liu, right. um, where specifically she's talking about... Um, well, her experiences, but in a wider context, um, this is a big problem for female engineers. Um, talking about, yeah, there being quite a high percentage of female engineers experiencing imposter syndrome. And she explains it with various different sort of Venn diagrams, which are kind of useful where you, so she describes it as if you got imposter sy- uh, syndrome, you kind of envisage this sort of small circle being the knowledge that you have and then other people having this sort of wider encompassing circle so they understand what you know but so much more and you just have this tiny subset of what everybody else knows and you feel like you're just scraping by on that and as soon as you step out of that boundary then you're going to get found out Hmm. whereas the reality is more sort of two equally sized overlapping circles where your experience and your knowledge they don't know 90% of it and 90% of their knowledge you don't know, which is the kind of the stuff that you see and go, oh, I don't understand that. They must know so much more than me. And Mm. then a sort of 10% that you both common shared knowledge. So in reality, everybody, when you get to a certain level, um, you know your area, they know their area, but those two things don't really, there's some overlap, but there's, you know, they could be looking at you and thinking they know so much about this thing that I don't and they, they're they really good at this and, oh, I'm I'm just barely scraping by on my little bit of knowledge. I like to think that's how it goes, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, the alternative is, yeah, maybe we aren't very good at our jobs and maybe everyone is much better than us, but it plays on your mind. <laughs> See, Adam, this is why we need all of our appreciation days. Yeah. <laughs> Next time you have a go because we've had sysadmin day and IT professional day, just remember the mental trauma yeah. we deal with every day. Okay, I'm sorry, I didn't realise. So next time I tell you it's sysadmin day, you put it on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> right, I think that's everything. It's really coming down out there, isn't it? Yep. I think it's meant to be like this until about 2pm tomorrow. Really? Yeah. Well, it's about time, I suppose. Although I'm going to go from one type of dead garden to another dead garden at this rate. <laughs> Waterlogged as opposed to hay. <laughs> or straw. <laughs> okay, right, we'll leave it at that then. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. If you want to drop us an email, please do. Podcast at unravelingtechnology.co.uk or hit us up on Twitter at Unraveling Tech. 
And then, as always, there's the blog, unraveling.technology. Drop us a review if you haven't already on your platform of choice. We'll be back next week. Uh, we're going to take this microphone for a for a ride, see if it's still working. And this the fourth broken microphone. Is that one the broken one, or am I speaking on the broken one? No, that's the broken one that's okay. not plugged in. Right, okay. Well, we'll see if we can resuscitate that ready for next week. Get some guests in. Yeah. Thank you for listening anyway. We'll speak to you next time. Me, David, and Adam. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Bye. Bye.